Welcome into Natchez Glen House Stories. And kids, I, I always say this, at some point I'm going to develop the pre-podcast and the post-podcast bonus content because as I get ready to record these with my guests, sometimes we get into conversations that I have to say, stop, we got to stop talking. We got to save this for the podcast. And my guest this week, Shannon Curry from Hoffman Nurseries, we were doing exactly that, Shannon. Uh, we, we were chatting <laughs> our heads off before we press the big red button that tells people it's recording. I want you to real quick um, give everybody the, the the short version of the specialty of Hoffman Nursery because I think it's a really fantastic topic for us to get into. Sure, I'd be happy to. Th- uh, thanks so much for having me today, Steve, too. Um, so Hoffman Nursery um, has been in business since 1986, but the nursery has always specialized in what you know we refer to generally as ornamental and native grasses. And so we grow only grasses, sedges, and other grass-like plants. Um, So things like rushes, or as I mentioned, sedges. Uh, We do a few other plants that are similar, but they're grass-like. And we are a wholesale nursery. So we only are selling to other businesses or into the industry. Um, And we do what's called uh, by different, depending on what kind of discipline you come from, we do what's called a starter plant or a liner or a plug even. So it's a small plant that's intended to either go right into the ground and that landscapers might buy or, um, you know, cities might buy or you might put into a big project or they're potted up and grown out into larger uh, finished sizes. That's how the industry refers to them, the finished size. Um, and and so we do those small starter plants and just those grasses, sedges, and rushes. What a, you know, it's a real interesting thing in the nursery <laughs> business, Shannon, because you, yeah. you, you mentioned 1986. And I'm trying yeah. to, in my mind, and for everybody listening, in your minds, people, this is where I tell all of us to role play. Mm-hmm. Right? We're role playing in 1986. Um, you know, what's popular? Uh, what a bold color stuff. Uh, we're still in a very like bedding annual mm-hmm. kind of world in the the eighties. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it, I, I would be kind and say the American Garden has got some challenges on it compared to some of the more prominent European gardens at that time. And grasses are mm-hmm. nowhere. Even Mm-mm. when you say grasses in 1986, people are talking about lawns in the United States. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. They are. It's turf grass, you know, lawns. And um, and, and uh, it still happens. You say you grow grass and people say, well, you know, that's turf grass. That's my lawn. And so you're so right. In, in 1986, and, and John Hoffman um, and his wife, uh, Jill Hoffman, started the nursery then. And that's that's when they opened. Um, John had been doing some landscaping um, and and started in that field, but he had right before that had been funny you mentioned Europe because that's exactly what he did was to travel to Europe and explore what was going on in the gardens of Europe and realized they were doing amazing work with grasses, that their gardens looked different than what was happening in U.S. gardens at that time. And it's an interesting thing because you always have this early plant, right? The the plant that's sort of like the one that that gets into the the world of 
gardening and landscaping. Would you say that probably miscanthus, for better or worse, was like the first grass in the United States, at least, that became a little bit more mainstream? It was the plant that was sort of like when people saw grass in a garden or landscape, they pretty much immediately assumed that must be a miscanthus grass. Yes. Definitely. Because, and part of that was, it, it was used so widely in Europe and, um, the work of which we may get into of Ome and Van Sweden, um, you know, some of the early adopters in the U S who, who came from, in Wolfgang's case from Europe, um, and we're using miscanthus a lot and it's showy. Um, the other thing about miscanthus was it, it was, I think by far, um, is the grass that's been most bred. Most, there are thousands of cultivars. Um, that may be an exaggeration, hundreds. But it was really the one that was most prominent since it's been bred since Victorian times. So you're right, Steve. That's what Miscanthus was at the time. What would be appearing in American gardens? And there's, if we're, we're walking through it here, kids, we're walking through it. I'm getting you here, right? Like this is an evolution and, mm-hmm. you know, we've, we've talked on the podcast in previous episodes and I think this is where grasses are maybe a success story versus something like Epimedium. Everybody knows I like to pick on Epimediums, you know, Shannon, I love them. <laughs> They're fantastic. They're one of my favorite plants, but they have not come to prominence in the way yep. that something yep. like grasses has. And I think what's yep. what's interesting in that story is if we were just talking about true classic flowers, you'd say, well, epimediums probably have an edge, right? They have, they have a flower, right? A mm-hmm. classic flower. But oh, yeah. it, it didn't have some of the people and talent and creativity maybe attached to them in the same way grasses did. Right. And, you know, when, so as John starts that nursery, gets some inspiration from Europe, do mm-hmm. you feel like the, the real words that you hear a lot of people who, who use grasses and understand the value of them is the robustness, the structure, the structure through the fall, the, the change of seasons to the grass as mm-hmm. opposed to in that late 80s into the 90s, we maybe start to slip away from it a little bit, but of like just the annual bedding plants, right? Like the grass is giving mm-hmm. you so much more, uh, if you want to use a generic term, bang for your buck, seasons of mm-hmm. interest than something like annuals were. Yes, I think so. And they they, they bring a lot um, to a landscape and they have some uh, kind of, to me, a suite of aesthetic qualities that you don't tend to see with other perennials. And, and some of this was also timing with that emergence of perennials um, that we hadn't seen up until then, as you said, it was bedding plants or people knew woodies. So absolutely right. The, the structural qualities so that they're very, they have linear foliage, um, which contrasts really well to other broadleaf plants or, you know, there's sort of that linearity that can be used very well. Um, They look great. As you mentioned, it, once they go dormant, grasses tend to keep their structure. So they don't melt to the ground, especially like bedding plants do. You've got something there that even when it's fully dormant is providing an architectural element. So a framework that those other plants can operate within um, and give, your, give you interest in the landscape. Um, 
and I'll tell you too, uh, to me, one of the very best qualities aesthetically for grasses is um, the movement and sound. So um, that grass really, I think, visual helps you visualize the wind, the breeze, in a way that few other plants do, and they sound amazing. Um, and you know when they're rustling, and so I think you're spot on, Steve. With those qualities, are something they brought to landscapes at the time that was just a unique set of features. And, and when, and this is something we're going to get into more and more, I think on the podcast, because it's a topic that both I think is interesting, but also slightly infuriates me, Shannon. Uh, <laughs> and I have to imagine that maybe John at the beginning and maybe even still now in the nursery, um, there's some of this feeling that many of the grasses we're talking about especially in that timeline of like where we're at now, let's call it early-ish 90s, right? That are Native American grasses, but the usage is heavier in Europe than it is in the States. Mm-hmm. And some of the breeding work that's introducing different characteristics, different heights, different sizes is going on in Europe a little bit more than it is in the States, is there a moment there and even maybe till this day where that's a little bit of a head scratcher for people, I think, right, Shannon? That like, well, hold on <laughs> yeah. a second. So this plant's natively from here. You know, we could pick on Anthropogon, a bunch of things. and oh, yeah. But yet, they're over there more than here? Yeah. Like, how is that a thing? Oh, it is. And, and you know, it's it's beyond grasses too. Lots of perennials. Really, I think in Europe, they recognized some of the qualities, which we, I'm sure we'll get into, but, th- but that's been happening. And that, that was the period of time where I think some of those amazing new cultivars of our native species of grasses in particular came back to the U S and people realized, wow, this is a plant that has real value in the landscape that was maybe only recognized when it came back to us in something that's a little showier maybe than the species. Um, I think in particular, something like a panicum, a switchgrass, a panicum virgatum, um, very widespread native grass. But one of the early cultivars was, was Shenandoah, which is beautiful red color. It's a nice height. You know, it's something that's kind of manageable and looks good in managed landscapes. And all of a sudden people go, huh, wow, we should be paying attention to these species that have not gotten attention before. Um, and it is kind of odd. It's it's some of the very best cu- and the most stalwart cultivars came to us from Europe. Um, I think you're absolutely right. And I think if memory serves me here, I think Pete Aldoff's first book is like 91 um, when it comes out mm-hmm. in Dutch and Danish, I believe. Somebody will correct me, people. It's okay. I'm going off the top of my head. I believe it's like their dream plants, I think, was the first one, um, which was more encyclopedia of plants because Pete was a, a nurseryman, known as at least a nurseryman before really his mm-hmm. reputation as garden mm-hmm. designer takes off. And it's interesting because right around that time of like mid-90s, I, I'd say, is when we we start to see the transition a little bit. Here's the the challenging question for you, Shannon. Um, and I, I guess I still see this going on, not just in the States, but in Europe and, and all of these contrast of garden cultures is 
grasses in gardens, right? Like, like interplanted. This is, you know, my friend Michael Marriott, you know, feel rants on this about roses. I think many of us feel this way. There has been this approach sometimes where like, this is the grassy area. We put the grasses over here. We put the mm-hmm. roses mm-hmm. over here. We don't right. we don't right. layer planting. We don't create depth yeah. and texture and contrast. Is that around the time? Um, and I know you joined the nursery in the the two thousands ish. We're like we're right. we're starting to see that. Like we're we're starting to say okay, it's mm-hmm. not just like grasses over here. It's right. grasses in gardens mixed with, you know, perennials, annuals, woody shrubs, the yes. whole thing. Yeah. And, and I think you're right. And that, that some of that happened, you know, as grasses got more and more popular in the U.S., um, you know, the work of Omi and Van Sweden was integrating s- large sweeps of grasses with perennials, but still kind of, um, you know, uh, chunks, thinking about them in those, those areas where you're isolating or you're having, um, you know, as you said, grassy areas, and that evolved. And and as you said, Pete brought that in. Pete Aldoff, other designers. What I would call kind of a progressive planting design of recognizing that we're more successful often if we're layering plantings and intermingling. And and as we know too, and and you know, biodiversity is a big deal. And having a garden where you've got woodies and perennials of all different kinds mixed together actually makes for a more resilient landscape. And, and I think aesthetically a more beautiful landscape. Um, and so that is happening more and more. That's, um, as you mentioned, so I joined the nursery in, in late two thousands, but the evolution of, and how people are using grasses has really changed a lot. Um, we saw, Early on, people are planting in big sweeps, which can be beautiful and dramatic. But what's gotten more and more popular, as you alluded to, is that people starting to integrate them more into designs um, as part of a whole, as a plant community. Um, I think that's maybe what part of what you're you're alluding to, and 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 we see that happening more and more. Well, I think it's one of the the concepts that I, I feel, at least I hope, Shannon, right? I'm hoping, right, people? That's what I'm hoping here. I'm being an optimist on yeah. the subject that we can continue to explore in conversations. It's what we do a lot here is, yeah. you know, looking at things as a garden as not plant here, plant here. Th- the mm-hmm. the tag says 36 inches. So I get out a ruler. I make this joke very easily this year, Shannon, that plants were social <laughs> distancing before any of us <laughs> right. were social distancing. And that look of what I guess I would call a very suburban American garden slash landscape, right? That it's just this one plant, 36 inches, another plant. And one of the things, uh, to his credit, that uh, in a talk that I saw uh, quite a while ago from uh, Fergus Garrett, a great dixter, that he talked about was – one of the advantages of grasses, and we're going to get into this distinction too, on the warm season grasses, they're not yes. up out of the ground in five seconds, right? It's not a plant in early April where, where you're based in North Carolina or I'm based in Tennessee, even for us where we can experience right. early heat. It allows for other plants around it to do their thing 
come up out of the ground. And then as those plants start to recede, be they bulbs that have foliage that dies back in the heat of summer, the grasses are just starting to come on. They're just starting to get their verticality to them. And is that something, and I know this is difficult sometimes on the wholesale side of the business, but that's one of the great uses of grasses, especially warm season grasses, is that they're starting to just come into their peak when some other early spring perennials or annuals or bulbs are starting to get a little tired. Right. Yes. That's the, the timing is just part of what I think makes garden design challenging, but also really exciting because you can, in understanding the plants, create this tapestry across the entire season and into winter. So you're, you're spot on. That's what warm season grasses um, take their time to start bulking up. It's really when it's, there's days of full sun, the soil and the air temperatures are warmer. That's when most of the grasses that you're, you can buy commercially are really starting to grow a lot and put on a lot of biomass. Um, and so by layering and intermingling these plants, you're letting other plants be at the forefront to, you know, kind of steal the show, if you will, early on. And the grasses will come in and really come into their own later in the season when some others are starting to, to you know, to, to senesce, to, to, to die back. Um, one really interesting and exciting aspect of what we do are sedges, which are not technically grasses. They're in a different family. So true grasses are in Poaceae and sedges are in Cyperaceae. Um, they are all the Carex that we grow, C-A-R-E-X, the Carex. We've seen huge popularity in the past 10 years. Um, and as for some of the reasons you and I have been talking about that, you know, people are interested in kind of a different kind of landscape maybe. Um, and sedges are cool season growers. And what we're seeing is people using them as that ground plane layer, as a ground cover, mixing them in with the bulbs and the early season plants. And so that's where there's a lot of excitement around what's a pretty pedestrian little plant, but super useful in gardens. Well, and it's one of the things, I mean, shout out to Roy Diblick. Um, yes. You know, there are, you know, Roy, I think is in his very Zen-like way has many times brought up this fact of so many American gardens look like mulch gardens, right? Like where, where there's as many wood chips as there are anything else where yes. you don't have these plant communities. And I think it's such an interesting thing, like when you bring up Carex, because here again, we have another group of plants that often, as I always tell you guys who listen, we're doing this thing where we dumb it down a little bit too much and we just want to lump them all together. We do it with iris. We do it with everything where yeah. there's this huge diversity amongst the, mm -hmm. the family and then huge diversity in usage and where they mm -hmm. work and the flexibility that that gives you. Do you, do you look at Hopefully, I think everybody in the plant world would be happy with this, Shannon, if we eventually got here, it's at least a goal to have that mm -hmm. more plants. I think people sometimes because of the tags and because of the you know social distancing of plants, the, it, it's hard for people to sometimes get away from that thinking, right? Because it's mm -hmm. like, well, no, you know, be it like a matrix planting kind of style right. with something like mm -hmm. Carex where you use a lot of them. And then yeah. you enter 
you you dot the I's and cross the T's and have these exclamation points around them. But it's 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 more exciting, Shannon. I've always looked at it as like, um, yeah, if I can get more plants and less right? mulch, <laughs> I'd be excited, right? Like I wouldn't be like, I don't think anybody has ever gone to uh, an independent garden center or a big box store and been like, man, I can't wait to buy my mulch today. Oh, this yeah, is the best mulch year yet. Um, is that part of it? You know, and I think Carrick's like you brought up, I think they're a great representation of exactly yeah. that kind of style and approach. They are. And that's what's changing a lot. I think, you know, some of it is we ascribe mulch this, it means you care about your landscape. You know, it's an, it's an indicator that I'm trying to do something good here. I'm trying to suppress weeds and hold in moisture and, and that's all great, but we can do it with plants. And that's why it is so exciting as a gardener to recognize by layering these plants I'm adding so much more. So yeah, it's a great opportunity to go get more plants. But it also, it's, it's, a, it's a living mulch that if you think about you're planting something there in between the other plants, so you can put them close together. As you said, it's, you know, the tag tells you proper spacing for a very particular kind of application. And in most cases, we can plant much more densely than that. And maybe we mulch in the beginning, but afterwards, those plants are touching each other. They're interacting in a way that starts to form a community. So weeds are suppressed. We're not doing as much weeding. Um, they're providing ecological value, too. I mean, I, I'm experimenting this with in my own home landscape where I'm underplanting with sedges. I've got some larger grasses, too, but I'm weeding a lot less. My challenge actually is what what I like to call plant editing, right? Yep. So, you know, I buy more more plants, but I but I also am taking some out over time and letting that garden mature and realize that maybe this space I can take out and move that plant somewhere else. But I'm also seeing um, wildlife. I'm supporting pollinators. I'm doing so much more with that space because I'm thinking about it as a plant community rather than, uh, as you said, little spots of little plants in their own little bubbles. Um, and I'm sure you've talked to, on the podcast, you know, that the work that um, Thomas Rayner and Claudia West are doing um, with their book, Planting in a Post-Wild World, a, a lot of, they've taken what, a lot of wisdom that's been around and I think putting it in very manageable format. And, and Roy Diblick is doing this, uh, just extraordinary folks with planting design that I think really speaks to what our landscapes can be. Well, and I'm going to make a comment here, people, that everybody needs to hear me on. Nobody send me hate mail about this, okay? To be able to calm, <laughs> you calm yourselves, okay? So one of the things I look at is I look at someone like Roy who worked with plants for 40 years. I look at somebody like Christopher Lloyd who lived his entire life with plants. And they all come to a similar place plants. That's it. Nobody does this thing where it's like, these go over here and these go over there. No, it's about creating a beautiful, as you said, tapestry and imagery of plants that interplay, that work well together. And the real creativity to gardening is what do you like? What does your eye love? What gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling when you see it? And then the skill of it is, like you said, how do we edit? 
how does this work? Can, can we get this to be a little more interesting? There's a little bit of a, a gap here in the spring that feels like it's a little too long, or there's a gap here in the summer that feels a little too long. That's the where the creativity really gets to continually change. It's the painting that evolves through the season and evolves through the years that really everybody should embrace. There is no such thing as done. And when, right. I, when I see people at an advanced age who have been doing this for decades, this is the don't get offended part, people, that you, you learn from that wisdom. Learn from that wisdom, right? Don't be yeah. you know, at a place where you go, eh, I don't know. What do they know? Uh, they know everything. They've been doing it for like 50 years. You Johnny-come-latelys <laughs> don't know anything. Go back to your YouTube videos. You know what I'm saying, kids? Like that's what we're talking about. Like there is this incredible group of people and I have been happy to see people like Roy and others becoming more and more um, public with the way they speak about this because, Shannon, that's what we talk about. Um, you know, there's all of these, we're at a time, as we, we're going to start to get into some specific plants here, we're at a time where I'm sure from your perspective, from John's perspective and starting the nursery and everybody there, we have incredible choices today too. Like that's the other thing. Like here we are in 2020. And if you go back to 1986, the the catalog was way thinner, I'm sure, Shannon, than it oh, is today. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. today we've got all of these incredible creative palette things to choose from. Absolutely. That's what's been exciting is, is there's, I mean, right now we, I we're growing 145 different individual grasses, sedges, or grass-like plants. I mean, that's amazing to me. And it's, it's um, the plant palette now is extraordinary, in my opinion. And it's, it has evolved, and it's evolved in ways that really make a lot of sense. And when we, we start to look at it, let, let's, let's go to this warm season, cool season topic mm -hmm. that we, we've thrown out there a little bit, but let's expand it more because I think it is very helpful for people. Yes. That how would you, in, in rough summation, separate the, we'll, we'll leave Carex to the side for now, but sure. as far as grasses go, separate warm season and cool season. Gotcha. So it, it really is, is about how they, um, they just have different processes for photosynthesis, right? So anyone listening to this would know photosynthesis, of course, but Warm season grasses, warm season plants have a different process and it works best. It's the most efficient when soil and air temperatures are higher. Um, and so what's fascinating to me about it, and especially you see it in grasses, is that they're uber efficient with sunlight, water, and nutrients. And so given the same amount of that resource they can grow twice as big as a cool an equivalent cool season grass could um, cool season plants photosynthesize most efficiently in cooler temperatures that's a fundamental difference and so they grow best at different times of the year um, cool season grasses grow have a growth spurt early in spring they start earlier they grow in spring and as the soil and air temperatures rise with summer, they slow down. They go into almost a partial dormancy. They hang out. And as temperatures drop later in the season, they'll ramp back up 
and go into the fall with another growth spurt. Um, warm season grasses, they hang out, they put on some root growth, and as the soil and air temperatures rise, they start to come to life and they take all those resources, the sun, the water, um, the any any fertility in the soil, and they grow like gangbusters. And they grow like that until the, the temperatures start to drop again. So that's kind of nutshell. Give me an example of a warm season grass and a cool season grass. Sure. Warm season would be a switchgrass, Panicum virgatum. A cool season grass would be a fescue, like a blue fescue that most folks are real familiar with. It's been in the trade a long time. So when we we talk about this, a lot of what we're talking about, I, I, everybody, this is why you got to go take like, a, you know, an evolutionary ecology class every once in a while, kids. <laughs> go on edX. They got a lot of programs now. They're free. You know, come on. There's a lot of ways to look at this because this is one of the things that I find so interesting about it because when we, we do separate you know, clearly the imagery that comes over from Europe versus here in the States, our climates are clearly worlds apart, worlds apart when it comes to, you know, the, a typical summer here versus a typical summer there. What do you, do you see that as a component, especially with something like in the warm season grasses where people need to sort of take advantage of that. You know, here we have a grass that can provide all of the seasons of interest, but do it really well in summer. You know, it's not like a digitalis that by the time, you know, you get to July, it looks like a flamethrower was taken to it, right? And it's like, oh, <laughs> it's too hot for me. I'm done. Right. It's just getting going. And if you would, I'm curious of the relationship where you guys are at how do you communicate that to your independent garden centers that buy from you, your, your other growers? Do you, do you feel like the warm season, cool season differential is talked about maybe as much as it should be? I think probably not as much because, you know, as, as we noted, sometimes, especially for new gardeners or anyone that's new to plants, it, that feels a little intimidating. Um, but I think at some level our in you know the green industry is attuned to this because those are the crops that people get in early or the cool season. Um warm season come in later and I think the challenge and and for us especially as a wholesale nursery is is something like a warm season grass it doesn't look like that much in early spring when, you know, around Mother's Day or even when when people are so excited to be in a garden center, a grass is not going to be very impressive. And so what we struggle with as a nursery is helping communicate that and how do we talk to people and to garden centers about how do we present this in a way that people will want those and understand those grasses are a really important part of a landscape but it's not going to yell at you from the shelf <laughs> in a garden center. Um, what's going to yell at you is that beautiful blue fescue that's gorgeous right now, um, whereas the switchgrass sitting next to it, not doing that much yet, that's impressive. Well, um, and this is one of, before we were recording, this is one of the challenges we were talking about, that a lot of things in the, the nursery trade are about the bench, right? The rack, the, what it looks like at the garden center, as you said, in, you know, in mother's day in May. And here we're talking about warm season grasses 
that, and trust me, kids, I've seen people try as, as try as you might as a grower <laughs> to get them to where they want to be for May, it just ain't happening, right? Like, I mean, right. you'd be running the, the most expensive greenhouse in the history of humanity. So right. that challenge, is that where, and I, and I think you'll get where I'm going with this, that mm-hmm. the marriage between like the the designers of the moment, the the people that communicate plants well, has been helpful as well for grasses. That a plant that doesn't just you know scream like you said on the shelf in Mother's right. Day, people are seeing it in these uses and going, I get it. Yes, that has made a huge difference. It really has. I think um, understanding that. They're appealing maybe to a different sensibility in spring (laughs) to when you see them in fall. Because if you see grasses at their peak in the fall or late summer, gosh, you'd be in love with them. But that's not necessarily when people are seeing them and hitting them. And so having designers communicate that um, is important. And then people, I think, seeing landscapes that use grasses really well. So you know, people can see the High Line or the Lurie Garden in Chicago or, or um, you know, the Battery in New York City or, or and there are places um, increasingly so too in the Southeast where that grasses look amazing at times when people are out and in those landscapes. Um, and so that has helped the conversation a lot for us. That's made it a lot easier for us to talk to people about what grasses do. Well, and it, it is crazy, you know, and I'll, like, again, if you're in the Dianthus Society of America or something, it's okay, people. <laughs> like, I don't mean, I'm just picking a plant at random that I know about, right? I mean, you know, something like Dianthus for me yeah. has always been like a garden center performer, in my opinion. It looks good at a garden center. Does right. it look good in a garden for that long? <laughs> You know, not the best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet it has been a darling of the nursery industry. You know, I, I wouldn't even right. want to guess how many dianthus have been sold in the last, you right. know, two decades. The number would probably be staggering. But we we have this entire group of plants that was not, you know, the dianthus versus the panicum in May, the dianthus is speaking to that person who yeah. doesn't know the plant very well. How do you see the role? And this is a broad question. And I think sometimes guests on the podcast themselves struggle with this bluntly mm-hmm. that the role of the wholesale grower, you know, we talked a little bit about this before we were recording, you know, that mm-hmm. you guys are clearly the most vested in grasses being known right? For the grass right. to compete with the, with the dianthus mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. How do you see your role in that? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. And it is something that we struggle with as a wholesale nursery is, you know, we understand the plants and, and there are all these layers between us and let's say someone who wants to have grasses in their garden. And how can we help our customers who are other wholesale nurseries selling to landscape contractors or they're selling to uh, to garden centers. So we try to focus on providing content um, to help them better understand the grasses. So we help try to help them be better at growing grasses, but also help them be better at presenting them and having conversations with their customers about them. Um, and 
that's where we've thrown a lot of our resources into that basket of of education and trying to give them the tools they need to communicate with their customers. Um, and as you mentioned, Steve, the designers play a huge role in that. And we, we, we literally speak to designers. We, I go do lunch and learns with landscape architects. Um, we, we go do talks to um, folks planning, um, you know, in, in municipal planning departments, because we also recognize that our public spaces or landscapes that are out there are part of what are shaping people's attitudes and tastes about what they want in their garden. So if I'm a home gardener and I see this amazing, you know, at a city hall, there's a landscape that's using grasses really well. That's a huge plus. So that's how we've approached it is we don't have the resources to speak always directly to, um, to home gardeners. But we really understand that attitudes about the landscapes and how people, the kinds of landscapes people are trying to build for themselves are partially based on what they see out in our public spaces. Well, so that's where we've invested a lot. And I, I think this is something we, we've now, you and I talked about it before we started recording again, uh, which has come up in a couple of other podcasts as well. Where are you as a business as part of the business there at Hoffman, is there any concern that the things that people see on social media, the the beautiful gardens, right? Hopefully like the, the garden remodel I'm doing here at people at Natchez Glen, right? Like that'll be <laughs> one of the gardens you guys next year will be like, what? Oh my God, what is going on uh, there? That's so incredible. Or the any of the work of people that we've already mentioned, like Pete and Roy and other folks that will people have access to some of those plants is, is the big question, I guess, sometimes Shannon, that, you know, how does that happen? Is it just more of like what you're saying? Like, Hey, we just, we want to get people where they're requesting them, where, where people know about them and they go to those garden centers and say, Hey, why don't you carry this? Or do you have that? Yes. It's a huge challenge. I think one of the most frustrating aspects of my job as marketing director is is talking about this with people and I get excited, they get excited and then they cannot find those plants or they see, you know, they're following Roy Diblick on Instagram or watching his videos or seeing Pete's amazing landscapes and, and what they try to do or what they can buy in a garden center doesn't look anything like that. Um, and that's still a pretty big gap right now. Um, we are, we're, there's some head scratching going on, I think, in the industry. How do we translate um, those bigger landscapes to a manageable size? Um, you know, I think we're, we're changing attitudes. We're changing what people are looking for, but we don't yet quite have a way to fulfill those desires. Um, some of what we're trying to have are conversations with uh, our customers are with um, folks who are really much more plugged in with retail. How can we make these plants available? Um, we've started partnering with some retail outlets to get smaller sizes of our plants. Um, and, and I know other wholesale nurseries are doing this too. You know, can we get, um, you know, if I'm recommending, uh, you know, planting more plants, right? If obviously it, it's in my nursery's in just, uh, interest to do that. But realistically, can I make that affordable for people? Can can we have smaller sizes or available to people to plant if they want a whole 
uh, do a ground cover or, um, you know, uh, the, the other complete, uh, to shift gears, um, in terms of that too, is what kind of plant palette works where they live. Um, you know, what, what's on the high line or what's in the Lori garden, both of which are amazing landscapes. Those plants don't all work well, let's say here in, in central North Carolina. Um, well, and, and that, that is a continual issue with all the yeah. guests on the podcast, Shannon, that it is, you know, I, I often joke, I mean, this country trying to be a wholesale grower <laughs> for it is like the most ridiculous thing of all time, right? And the yes. for many years, and I don't know if I've actually said this this way, so this might be news for you guys as listeners, but um, some of the tag companies that would that produce like hang tags, plant tags that you went and saw in garden centers. Some of those companies have historically been European based companies. So when you were seeing that photo, it was a photo probably taken in Europe of a plant description that was written by somebody who lived in Europe and that, that sizing and spacing and all those things they were talking about were probably based on something they just came up with randomly. And they lived in, I don't know, somewhere in, in, you know, Western Germany and you live in central Georgia. Like there's no comparison between the two, right? One is an inferno and one is a mild temperate climate with cold winters. Like there's, there's no comparison in latitudinal, you know, climate between the two. So how do you see, I think it's an interesting point you mentioned. Um, and even when you work with designers, I'm curious, like when you give talks, uh, you know, Pete recently did this project in um, Detroit, the, the, yes. and Belle yeah, the uh-huh. Belle Isle project. And I think Roy shared, I think there were 26,000 plants mm-hmm. that went into it, right? which strikes people as a, I think the project's even less than an acre maybe, or just a little over, but it was 26,000 plants, mm-hmm. <laughs> Shannon, that mm-hmm. are, are even, let's leave the gardener to the side for a minute, but like the, the landscape designers, are they starting to sort of go, whoa, that's a lot of plants. They are, they really are. And, and it's, that's also, it has been evolving. And it, I think that the challenge there is that often that upfront, like, wow, that's a lot of plants. But really when you compare budgets, you know, hardscape to plant material, plant material is, is traditionally been, uh, one of the lower costs of projects really. Which I think would shock people. Which I, 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 I think, yeah. you know, I, I rant on this subject all the time. For some reason in the greater Nashville area where I am based at, decent quality top dressing compost that maybe I would finish a project with, the mm-hmm. cheapest I can get it for is like $60 a yard, which is yeah. astronomically high. Mm-hmm. And I, it pains me. Like it pains me. Like I would, I, I would, I, I don't, I would much rather, as we already talked about in the home gardening setting, have plants. Like it's ridiculous right. to me. Like if you're saying, what would you rather invest in? $600 for like ground up wood chip and leaf or yeah. <laughs> $600 in plants, Shannon? I'd be like, yeah, $600 in plants all day long. Yes. And and it also too is, is I think it helps to think about the lifetime of the project that that plant density cuts down on the amount of resources you've got to put into things like weeding. Not saying you won't have to weed because 
as I'm sure having talked to Roy, we all know that, you know, there's no such thing as no maintenance. It's K N O W maintenance, no maintenance, but that investment in plants is really smart over time. It really helps. It, it makes for better landscapes, but, but sure the Belle Isle project, tons of plants and, and the regionality of that plant palette, um, you know, it can be intimidating for, for folks, I think, when you think about those that plant material. But thinking about it as part of the greater input of the project, um, it's a really smart investment to make. Do you see one of the things that I think is, again, challenging is how do you do you guys look at it with regionality in mind now? more and more, right? Like that, you you know, for a long time, and I think this is a pretty safe statement to make, the Northeast Corridor really dictated a lot of the plants that were being sold in the nursery industry. It was where the most growth was in the country. It's where the most wealth was in the country for decades and decades. Um, That that is changing. That the, the plants that performed well on Long Island don't necessarily perform well in North Carolina or Georgia or Tennessee or Texas or places like that. Is that changing? It is. It is. I think there's much more attention to regionality and, and, and we deal with it a lot at, again, at our customer level, because we do, we ship all over the country, all over North America, really. And one size does not fit all, you know, plants that, um, a great example to me is, is Japanese forest grass. Hekonicloa macro, which is absolutely gorgeous in cooler climates. It's it's a warm season grass, so you think perfect, right? I'll plant that in North Carolina. Uh, no, it's not one. In fact, we steer folks away from that grass. If you're in the southeast and high humidity and high heat load, forget it. And so, conveying that and helping people understand that it takes a lot of of work, I think, but people respond to that. I think if folks understand that the plant palette has to be different, um, is the challenging part, but I see that happening more and more often. I see other nurseries doing that. Um, so in their information about plants, including tips about regionality, what works here maybe doesn't work there. Um, and Steve, as you alluded to earlier, you know, some of these projects are, are in places where people see something in a magazine or on Instagram and they think, that's what I want. But what we have to help folks understand and learn how to do and learn ourselves is how can we translate that plant palette to something like, as you mentioned, you know, Southern Georgia or the Nashville area? What's going to be equivalent and, and, and function in the same way and, and give us the same joy? but with plants that are regionally appropriate. Well, and I think you picked on, I'm glad you said it, Shannon, so I didn't have to, but Hannah Nicola has been one of those grasses, right? It's been in every gardening magazine, it feels like for 30 years, Um, you know, which if it's just, you know, it's one of the cultivated varieties, you see this golden, you know, slightly droopy, underplanted, under an acer palmatum Japanese maple, and then there's some kind of, you know, something else going on. You know, it's this very iconic imagery. 
of a plant that I think people have seen, but yet everybody forgets to tell them that photo was taken outside of Seattle, Washington, right? That it's just like, <laughs> oopsie, our bad, right? We're in one right. of these Goldilocks climates where that photo was taken and it's a plant yeah. that's not a, I had somebody on Instagram live probably six months ago asked me about it. Um, and they said they were in the Southern US. And I was like, well, you know, quite honestly, it's not the best. Uh, you know, it struggles when we get into difficult years and it really does want, in fact, a foresty, loamy soil if it's going to have any chance of success. So when we when we start talking about that and we start getting into something like panicums or entropogons, those kind of plants, how do you see like the like there's one, like as an example, I'll share with you guys openly. Like I, I see panicum purple tears show up on my radar and I'm like, Ooh, that's new. That's cool. That looks good. How do you guys get like a new introduction like that into like the production pipeline a, and then B to get people to see maybe the distinctions between it is a cultivated variety and some others that you already offer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it. That's that's actually really fun. Um, that one in particular came to us actually from Pete Aldoff. That that's one that he selected in his garden in the Netherlands. So having that connection with Pete, um, he we get plants from him. You know, how do we then think about uh, does that plant translate to the U.S. And it it turns out it does because Panicum vergatum one of our native species. So something like that, sometimes it's relationships we have with folks. Um, sometimes we go out and look for, you know, we've got a hole in our, in our lineup of grasses that we need to fill, you know, something that's this height or this color or does something. So we have these relationships with plant breeders out there. Um, but then we take that plant, we trial it in our gardens and, and, and in production too. Um, as we've mentioned earlier in the recording, um, it is important for us to be able to grow it and transport it and have it be appealing to people to buy. So there's some factors that are that are kind of superordinate for us, um, other than just is it garden worthy? Um, and so we do that. Um, there's a pipeline for getting stuff to us. And so Purple Tears, Panicum, um, we grew it in North Carolina. It does really well for us. We send it to, to other folks. We have um, designers. We have partners, other places. Uh, a lot of public gardens help us out by trialing uh, plants in, in their climates. So we're really getting feedback over time about how it does. Um, but I'll be honest and say that our process for that is evolving as well as we realize there's so much more regionality to explore. Uh, especially for our native species and the cultivars that come from plant breeding um, from those native species. So figuring out, you know, can we find a, a panicum that that does really well in the upper Midwest? Does it do equally well in the Southeast? And that's not always going to be the case. Um, well, and I think there's a lot of lessons learned from something like echinacea that, you know, there was this just like laundry list of cultivars that came out Mm -hmm. and we've talked about this before that you know they just there were some that didn't do that great that's just the reality of it they they didn't Mm -hmm. have the cold hardiness because of the parent species breeding they didn't have great reliability you know as a even a a short-lived perennial (laughs) they became Mm -hmm. like there were some of them were like annuals 
do as you you're evolving that process and, and and just take a second here because I think people can hear this when you speak and I think this is pretty consistent across all growers. The grower side of the industry is so intimately concerned about plant performance because it's the side of the industry that is in it for the longest term that you know people don't understand the the production process you know it's not like you just get a plant you got a whole bunch of them it can take a while getting a plant ramped up in numbers can take time and resource and investment so i think would you agree with that that that's the side of the industry that really does like it's important right like you don't want a plant that just does well at the point of sale but then it does poorly in people's landscape design or gardens cuz they'll never buy them again right it is really important. I, I think being garden worthy is it, is it one that um, will be there for folks and perform as they expect it to. So part of what I think you're we're really talking about are expectations, helping people understand what to expect out of a plant is really key because if we, you know, it looks amazing in that pot, as you said, in the garden center, and then it's going to die after a year or two. And they're expecting it to be a long-lived plant. That's not doing anyone any favors. Um, we are ultimately trying to have landscapes that do more, that are sustainable, that are stable, and that really help all of us. And so a, a short-term investment in a plant that's going to pop in and then die doesn't help anyone. So. You know that's kind of the big picture, but but also yeah, we've got to we've got to grow plants that do well for folks, and and maybe if it's a short-lived plant that they understand this is a plant that's going to be there for three or four years, filling that space, and then down the road you're going to replace it with something else that's more long-lived or or you know transition to something different. That landscapes are dynamic, but as performance is what ultimately has to decide: are we going to carry this plant? It has to be a good performer. Yeah, I think you're right with the expectations comment. I think that's such an important part of a plant in a garden, and you know, and, and communication gets back to that. Like, what is the expectation, and how do you approach that? I tell people a lot. I've already picked on them, and the people from the Foxglove Society will throw me more hate mail. It's okay. <laughs> you know, I use digitalis in a southern garden as like an annual. Like, I'm I'm very much never. <laughs> The 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 imagery in my mind of the digitalis gently self-sewing somewhere in northern right. Europe just doesn't happen, right? It's just right. not the no. same experience. So for yeah. me, I when I use them, be it a new cultivar to try out, be it something that I'm trialing for someone, I just approach it that way. And I'm okay with that. You know, whatever that gives me through the course of a spring season, I embrace it. I'm okay with it. Do you do you look at things like panicum mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's a lot of people now with these introductions just to pick on them as a group that when when we talk about cool season versus warm season when is the ideal time to plant them then is, is it a good idea to wait till like mid-spring in like mild climates and cool climates maybe even into late spring to plant them to avoid maybe some problems Possibly, yeah. It's timing is is pretty important with the with the warm season grasses. I'll say that 
sort of. Um, they are going to grow best when the soil and air temperatures are warming up. So what I would say is, is uh, depending on your climate, what you don't want them to do is be planted and sit there in something, you know, wet and cold for a long time, period of time. So if you're going to plant in spring, um, I would say, yes, wait a little bit till it's um, other plants are breaking dormancy so that you've, you're past your, your, uh, you know, your first, uh, your last frost date, probably last freeze date um, and plant them when the plants are starting to actively grow. But they can be planted really kind of throughout the season. One of the caveats, actually, for those uh, warm season grasses is um, what you want to avoid with certain ones, especially, is very late in the season. Um, so late summer is fine, even early fall. But depending on where you are and what your winters are like, um, you want to make sure that you plant them in time in the fall that they can get some root growth on. Um, because those plants obviously are starting to enter dormancy. And what we see sometimes is that people plant, if they plant too late in the season um, and they get a wet, soppy winter, grasses in general tend to really appreciate well-drained situations. Um, they can handle, in some cases, not having that, but not if you put them in the ground and they go into winter and it's not well-drained. Um, so being... Uh, cognizant of of making sure those grasses have time to either establish before you're stressing them with wet soppy conditions, or that if it's that's late in the season, early in season, uh, waiting until you know they're going to start actively growing before planting them. Now, when we we look at something like Calamagrastis, as example, Carl Forster has been like mm -hmm. this standby for a long yeah. time right? Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you guys are growing that you, that at the nursery as a group, you're like, I wish people would buy this Calamagrastis sometimes, you know, is there that moment, uh -huh. Shannon, where everybody oh, goes yeah. like, okay, we love Carl, Carl Forster. It's a great plant. Right. We love it, yep. but, but, but we got some other ones too, guys. Is, is oh, there that? Yeah. Uh, for Calamagrastis right now, there's Carl Forster still the best performer. Um, I think, but there are, I think Panicum you mentioned is a, gr is a great example of where there are new cultivars out that, that are not getting explored because people are used to the, to the. Let's talk about pets. these ones, Shannon. This is when we get to yeah. the good stuff. Let's, let's go yeah. through it. And let's think, cause I always say this to all my grower friends. I'm like yeah. every grower and, and being one myself at large scale for quite some time, yeah. I can tell everybody you have plants that you're growing. Like I even had it this year. Like I even in our curated garden programs already, people, I had one, uh, which was the Eucarella Redstone Falls. I was uh -huh. like, why is nobody buying this one? This is like the yeah. best plant. Like this, this yeah, is such a good, yeah. good plant. Exactly. What are those for you guys? Yeah, there are a couple. So I'll mention a, 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 a great segue because you mentioned um, Panicum Purple Tears. Um, that's a newer one from Pete Aldolf, as I mentioned. What I love about it is it's a really great size. So it tops out at about four, four and a half feet, um, with blooms. So it's a manageable size for most landscapes. It's not so big that you have to kind of struggle to find a place to, to put it. Um, and it's got beautiful, um, purple seed heads, kind of pinkish purple seed heads. So, uh, that's a great one. Um, I will mention too, I'll tell you right now, my very favorite grass is 
a lesser known native species, Andropogon ternarius. And uh, we're growing a cultivar that's relatively new called Black Mountain. And this is it's primarily, I'm trying to think, it's probably zone, just barely zone six. But so this is not necessarily for a national um, distribution, but especially in the Southeast, um, this is a real winner of a plant. Um, and I'll take just a minute to tell you the story is wonderful. Um, so Andropogon ternarius is, is uh, kind of a meadow prairie species. Um, it has a pretty wide range across the eastern U.S., mostly in the southeast. And it varies a lot. You can see it being seven feet tall down to three feet tall. It's because it's, it's a native species, you know, it's quite variable. Um, and uh, a colleague of ours is a curator at the North Carolina Arboretum in Asheville, North Carolina. And he has a family farm in Black Mountain and found a stand of this Andropogon ternarius growing on the family farm that was relatively short, only about three feet tall, um, and was beautiful in color, was really consistent. So it was always relatively short, but beautiful, um, great colors, a very tough, a resilient plant, and shared those seed with us. And so now we're growing it and and it's I love it because it it's provides food for wildlife so birds eat the seeds and it's uh, great but it's a poly, host plant for some poly, uh, for some butterfly species um, it's a tough plant and it's a native species so it ticks off all of my personal gardening boxes um, in a way that I'm really excited about um, so that's one I would definitely recommend so black mountain what color mountain. is the the seed head in the the late season? So what's really exciting about seed heads is they are, uh, it comes out as a little poof of, um, and it's the little tiny hairs on the blooms. And so it's actually a silvery, um, the inflorescences are tall and it gets these little silvery poofs that are almost like feathers. Um, and so it, uh, oh gosh, right now it's looking amazing. It's called, the common name is split beard blooms, blue stem. And those little silvery inflorescences in the flowers are just really capturing the light and making for a great show. So it's it's for fall. Um, you've got beautiful colors, pinks, purples, um, kind of blue greens all mixed in there with these little silvery inflorescences. So um, it's quite the eye catcher. Which is which is incredible because when you look across the we like uh, Brent Horvath from Intrinsic Perennials. He's got some Andropogons yeah. from like the upper Midwest kind of introduction style. I, yeah. do, you, do you think, and, and this is something historically, you know, people have just thought about uh, trees and shrubs for, but like really vivid fall color is yeah. a real highlight of a lot of grass genus and species and cultivars. Yes. Oh, it is. And that's that's part of what makes them. And that's what is warm season plants. So most of the time they're blooming in late summer into fall. So you're getting the inflorescence. But then, yes, the colors there are intensifying. Um, a lot of those warm season grasses, you mentioned andropogon, the panicums, the, um, the schizocariums, so the little blue stems, um, all really get that color as the, the day, day length is shortening. Um, and you get the cooler temperatures, their foliage really starts to show colors. Um, uh, you mentioned Brent Horvath from Intrinsic. Um, we grow Blackhawks, his Andropogon gerardii, that is um, one of those that actually does fantastic in the South as well. Uh, you know, Brent's in uh, the Midwest, but intense, beautiful, 
deep uh, purples and reds and uh, great it's colors. It's almost a hard color to explain. It is. You know what it I'm is. saying, Shannon? It's one yes, of those, like, I, I think people want to call it, like, red. And then you look at it and go, oh, no, no, uh, it's not red. It's no. definitely a lot going on in this. Like, it's one yeah. of the, the greatest things ever. I always joke about is like paint chips, right? Like, oh, <laughs> or like God, primary yes, color right. crayons. Uh, plants don't really exist in that world. You know, plants are this gradient of color oh, gosh, that yeah. is just as vivid as anything you could possibly see. As we start heading down the home stretch here, let's. Yeah talk Carex. Uh, Uh, We've already talked about them for a second as far as usage and people Mm -hmm. using them in, uh, you know, under plantings and matrix plantings and things like that. But the the thing that I want everybody to really, really get here, and I want your expert opinion on this, is where I see Carex being grown uh, in a lot of design work, it is with shade. Mm -hmm. Not all Carex do shade well. Some do, some don't. And what's the line for shade? Like, you know, are we talking like high overstory, heart of the forest, right? Like not all shade is created equal. How would you sort of classify some of that light exposure difference between them? Ah, yeah, that's, that's, it turns out, you know, pretty complex question. Well, complex answer, I should say. Um, There's so many carics out there. Uh, species, uh, over 400 native uh, east of the Mississippi in the U.S. So part of the challenge is for the Carex is understanding which ones we're looking at. So as you mentioned, some do really well with what we call high shade. So um, they have, uh, you know, some tree cover and, and very little direct sun maybe, but a fair amount of light. Um, and so uh, there are a big chunk of Carex, especially our native species, that do really well in that kind of situation, what I call high shade or mid shade. Um, very few do well in full on, you know, all day shade. Um, but we, there's some that, that grow in full sunlight. Um, what I often find is that a lot of the Carex that are available commercially are dominated by shade lovers. But that doesn't mean, as you pointed out, Steve, that they all do best in shade. Um, there are Carex, especially groups from New Zealand. Um, so the, the New Zealand sedges, um, Amazon mist is a popular one in the trade, or some of the bronze colored Carex um, come from New Zealand and they love full sun and do really well there. Um, what I think is most exciting to me about the Carex is, is this growth in native interest in native species of Carex. And Unlike ornamental grasses that have been in the trade for decades and have been um, explored um, by lots of of those of us, you know, growers and people in the commercial trade, um, Carex are still very new to so many of us, and there's so much to learn. Um, There is a Carex that grows in pretty much any plant community you can imagine, and that's both exciting and challenging as we try to figure out what ones will work best. What ones can we grow and produce reasonably well? And how are they going to perform in our landscape? So it's it's kind of wide open. Um, and that's what's so exciting about well, it right and, now. You know, recently I brought in a flat of uh, Carex Appalachica as an example, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And here we have this species Carex 
that literally grows, you know, not too far from me as far as range goes, right? But does have right. this like microclimate that mm-hmm. it enjoys in those areas. And do you find, and this is a delicate question for me to ask here, there's this uh-huh. line on natives that sometimes yeah. I, I worry we go too far. I know some some people in the, in, you know, we'll, we'll give Pete another shout out here. Like he pushes back on that sometimes because people have tried to sure. categorize his work as native when right. he uses plants mm-hmm. from literally all over the globe. That yeah. on something like Carex Appalachica, Carex Pennsylvanica, things like that, that it's not just that. That's not their only usage, right? Like it's not just mm-hmm. if you're doing a native planting and oh, no. that that's sort of part of that to explore. You know, where do those plants perform well? Like how do we interuse those in garden settings? Yes. And and that's, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I think what's uh, really interesting about the Carex as a group and thinking about it again from the nursery industry side is um, unlike the grasses where, you know, we talked about earlier, a lot of the early work was done in Europe with our native species. And what's happening is that we are recognizing in the U.S. that we have this incredible wealth of Carex that are native to here that we can use. Um, We're also bringing in, I mean, one of my go-to sedges is Carex divulsa which is a Eurasian species, fantastic. And it, it works in a huge range of situations. So it's kind of a, a, a real a multitasker. Um, but our native sedges offer a lot too. So some of it is the richness of opportunity there. The timing is right. So that's why we talk a lot about native sedges, in part because they do have this additional layer of, of uh, ecological value that, you may not be able to bring in with an introduced species. So we know that our native pollinators will, um, you know, come to these native species. They may also go to some of introduced plants as well. But so it's, it's a lot about opportunity. I think um, that we're really exploring our native sedges, but um, there are just so many. And um, as you mentioned, Carex Appalachica has a, you know, a particular niche and it, it won't work well for everyone, but, there's some um, Carex cherokeeensis where it's hardy is a real uh, workhorse and a great sedge for lots of different garden situations. So, um, you know, the, I think what's cool about it is this, um, if you're interested in a native plant palette, there are going to be a lot of new sedges available that will fit those landscapes. But a lot of our native sedges that are coming out of the market will fit any landscape, no matter what your gardening philosophy is. And you mentioned earlier on trying to see if there are like holes as far as size goes and the availability mm-hmm. usage goes. Are there any of those that come to mind? Like a, a something that, you know, if for Hoffman nursery, if there was like a, I wish we had this and this, is there anything that off the top of your head that strikes you? Yes. I've got three examples that just popped into my head based on our discussion. So um, one of those is a Carex that spreads, um, well-behaved spreader, but for full sun. Um, right now, that we have some good spreaders for sh- more shady conditions. 
there aren't a lot on the market that would do really well in full sun. So something like an alternative to a traditional turf grass lawn, do that with a sedge that you don't have to mow. So looking for that. Um, another one would be um, panicums. The switchgrasses are really popular. We don't have many shorter cultivars available. Now, I know we talked about, we're kind of laughing a little bit about um, fitting on, the on you know, uh, garden center shelves. But in reality, some of the panicums, are, they're fantastic in places like parking lots or on a, a curbside um, in tough spots. But some are so tall that they block traffic or they're hard to work with because you only need one or two. Um, so finding a sh- some more short panicums would be fantastic for us. Well, because really um, like Penicetum has been one of the few groups that offers like smaller scaled yes. grass for full sun. Would you agree with that? Yep. Yes, exactly. That's that's exactly the niche that I think the panicum could help fill is, is you know, more folks are interested in. And a lot of people do want to grow native uh, varieties. And so exactly what you're saying is instead of a penicetum, they may want to use something else. We've got a lot of choices in penicetum. Um, so it'd be nice to have a broader palette in, in the panicums as well. Do you see, like, I'll give one, uh, Chanticleer Garden outside of Philadelphia yeah. has this yeah. massive area of Sporopolis heterolepsis, yes. right? Gosh. That in itself motivated me to buy a bunch of Sporopolis heterolepsis. <laughs> what, what am I going to do with them? I'm not even quite sure. I just suddenly have, like, you know, 72 Sporopolis heterolepsis, right? I'm just oh, like, yeah. okay. So do you do you see some of that too, right? Like there's this, the garden view of it, the designer view of uh-huh. it, but then there's almost something like that, that borderlines, I want to use the word art installation a little yeah. bit, Shannon, that it's just this, yeah. when you see that area, and you see it, especially like probably now as we speak in October. Oh gosh. It would yes. be spectacular, right? It just mm-hmm. becomes this like living piece of, you know, visual installation. Is that part of it too? You know, as we talk about like Carex usage, Sporobolus, whatever it might be, that there's mm-hmm. going to be some cultivated varieties at some point coming down the the line on those. Is there more and more in production and cultivation? that they also have that kind of usage too, that just sort of is this massive, like, look, this is what this does. Yes, I think so, because they are so iconic. Um, as you mentioned, that, that Sporobolus Meadow and Chanticleer just is literally breathtaking um, and, and gets people to pause. And so that kind of planting um, is something that I think people can translate to to smaller areas or get that feel. I think part of what we're talking about is that feel that people get the way, um, you know, it's what uh, in, in art history, people talk about modern art. Um, you know, does it look like uh, you're painting a person or you're painting a, a house? No, but it it evokes a feeling um, it, and it's meant to do that. And I think those landscapes are so important to people that, uh, and grasses and such as lend themselves to that. There's a, I think there's like almost primal, pull that we have toward those sweeping landscapes. Um, and they have a place. You know, we talked about plant communities earlier. There are times when that open landscape or that artful landscape, um, I think, plays an important role in speaking in speaking to us. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's something that people are interested in doing. 
lost ties of these old abandoned rails Wondering about the stories they could tell I think of all the weight I carry on my own And I try to empathize with all they bear There's something about the sun that brings me back to life It's just like staring in your eyes And I can't tell you what it is I'm doing here All I know is nothing's felt so right So let me stay Feeling this way I never want to leave this state of Everybody's putting down this brand new hymn But they're just whispers way up here They got no rhyme for the reason why it's wrong But there's still this burning in my ears So for you